This is. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Linda. Well, it's nice to have a chat with you. Yeah, same here. So you're a Connemara man. Through and through, born in Connemara, born in bred and raised in Connemara, little Gash West, Rinvai County, Galway, to be exact. I I started out there, and I went to school in the local national school. I was about six years of age when I started school, and I finished school when I was fourteen. It wasn't my favourite place. It was fine for the first few years until I moved into uh, what we called the big room, our third class, and then it wasn't good after that. So um, I couldn't wait to get out of it. Probably nobody's fault, it's just from the times I was in it. And I stopped when I was 14, as I said, and um, I started out fishing with my dad in 1965. I was, I was 16 years of age. I went lobster fishing with him, so. That was great, and it wasn't about it wasn't about the money. It was about the the excitement of it and the thrill of it and all that. I did, actually didn't. He actually he actually didn't give me any money. It went towards the house, you know. So um, we'd go out lobster fishing more nearly every day. If the day was fine, and haul up lobster pots. We'd go out in the morning fairly early because at that time the pots were pots that. The lobster came in, and when he had his feet, he went out. So generally, the best time to day you were in the morning. Generally, was the most day you'd have lobsters. So that's was the main reason we went out in the morning early. Then on a Sunday, we went out exceptionally early because we'd been to catch eleven thirty mass Tully Cross, and um, we get up at about I'd say two three o'clock, get ready, and we'd hit off. The weather at that time was really fine. That's, a, that's something I see an awful change in since that time. The weather's not nearly as good as it was back then. But we'd go out on a Sunday morning at 2, 3. And I often remember him, he'd, the first pots he'd be hauling up, he'd put the pot up between himself and the skyline to see what's on the lobster and it to be still kind of dark. We'd haul up the pots and then we'd head for home and we had no watch or nothing so he was gauging the time of the sun as the sun moved across the sky from east to west and he'd say, I said, we're okay. He said, we think we have enough time according to the sun. And then as we came up close to the, to the mainland, he'd see three men going back to mass. They came from the next village over and they walked back the road past our house and they always went back at the same time every Sunday. And he said, well, we're sound, it's just it's 10 o'clock, I think it was 10 o'clock they passed back. So we put in the lobster pot, the lobsters into the store pot and we'd pull things in and we'd head for mass. I'd walk and hear a bicycle. So that was Sunday then. But we had to go to mass because that was the way it was, you know. Mass of confession is a big thing. Big. And you said you'd get ready to head out. And to head out to go f fishing and pull up the lobster pots and what did getting ready entail of? Getting ready got entailed um, getting up and we had an open fireplace at that time and we had no cookers and nobody else had them I think either. So we'd have to light the fire up and um, the fire was raked from the night before which meant it was covered, the coals were covered over with the ashes, there was no such thing as fire lighters or anything like that. So 
that, that, that time the people were, they really were self-sufficient. There was no waste or nothing. And there was no money, of course, either. But uh, he'd light up the fire then and he'd hang the kettle on it. And most often that, he'd put two eggs into a pecan under the kettle. He'd have eggs himself and tea. I'd have tea and biscuits. I couldn't eat any bread. He'd have homemade bread. And while, while the kettle and the eggs would be boiling, he'd kneel up on a chair very often and he'd say some prayers. And by the time the prayers were said, the kettle and the eggs were boiled. So we'd have that then and we'd go out. We'd bring nothing with us normally. They would be just lifting the pots. If we do another fishing, we bring a bottle of tea and some bread. And we'd eat it out to see the tea would be cold in the bottle or midday, maybe one o'clock. But I think it was nicer than the tea you had in the flask that you have nowadays. I remember when the flask came out, I thought well, it was nice and the cold tea on a fine day. It was lovely, like. And we'd sit down having the tea and the bread and stuff and and my daddy throat and I'd crush to the seagulls. The seagulls had come back and they'd be eating the bread and that was that was great. Yeah. Was it nice being out there? It was lovely, was... yeah. It was lovely. And and now attending we'd see a plane or we'd say it's heading for America to be going across the which it would have been like. It's heading west. And um would you I often wonder how it would be like to be around these yokes, you know. But I found out many years later, when I met a woman, that she brought me to America. <laughs> and the rest is history. Is that your wife, Maureen? Yeah, that's why she's sitting there beside me, yeah. Do you want to say hi, Maureen? Maureen, do you oh, want to hi. say hello? Hello. <laughs> no, isn't that true? Well, that was how it happened. It is true, yeah. Yeah, so... I went from, from Lethargate to California in one scoop. 6,000 miles, she has nearly killed me. You know, but, uh, yeah. And uh, so you used to pull up the lobster pots, and did you, do, did you do any other types of fishing? We did fishing for other fish as well, with nits. And um, them fish were, a lot of people over in we call Jay's country and Tormacady, Finney, that area, them people use a lot of that fish. That was a big place, that was a, they were big fish buyers and eaters them. And these we salted fish now to be what we call cured with salt. They used to come back for them and buy them and he used to supply them with And them would fish. you salt the fish as well? The fish would be salted, there was a process of you came in, there was a lot of work work to them. There were cleaned out and washed and then they were, you'd layer them in on that barrel and pinch the salt on top of them. And when you the first layer on, you left the next layer down on top of them and you pinch the salt on them again. And so on until the, until the top of that, the barrel was filled up to the top of the fish. Now would it always work or would some fish just happen to not get enough salt or was it no, pretty safe? No, that never happened. You'd pinch it, pinch it on fairly even. And the, the next morning then the pickle needed to be over them fish at the top, if it wasn't, there was a problem. But I never seen that happen. The only way that wouldn't happen, probably to add enough salt around them, or the leak developed in the battle. And if that happened, your fish was, they, were, they wouldn't cure then. But I never seen it, I never seen it happen. They'd be, they'd, the picket would be always up open the next morning to melt salt and melt it. 
And they um, left about, I think, about eight or ten days in salt. I, I, I don't remember exactly before he lifted them out of the salt because the salt needed time to go through the fish and through the bone. And then he'd lift them up out of the salt, take them out and the, let them drop off, the pickle off them, and he'd put them into another container then they wouldn't hold any liquid. And there'd be holes in it, you know. But then fish then were what we call fully cured for the market for eating. Oh, and would somebody come to collect them then or would you deliver Yeah, people that come they came generally for them and um they they came come back in the car. But I before I got on the scene a man used to come back with a horse and cart. That was before my time, I think he was coming. I know he was coming back when Daddy and my mother got married because my mother used to tell a story about the man. He came back from around, I think to Mercadia or somewhere. And um, as he got older, he he used to stay the night. They used to put him up in a better spare bed or something in the house. And man used to polish his shoes while he was there. And then he'd go off the next day in the horse and cart. And he'd have a full of fish and probably crania as well as the other thing we, we picked, which was the seagrass. And uh, he'd head off with that then. But then he eventually was coming back here, he used to get a car, somebody throw him back. So they mostly came for them and daddy had them ready, put them there and put them into whatever and they'd, they'd pay for them and they'd head off, you know. So that was some of the procedure. You know, but, uh, and did you eat them in your own house? We'd eat some, you know, not an awful lot now. My father and I would eat more of them than me, and I'd tell me my cup to the pub for a pint. And he'd come down at 12 o'clock, walking two miles. He'd go to the top of the valley for a gunner, gunners we called them, they were rockfish. But he'd put a, I just imagine he'd put on the gunner at 11 o'clock at night on 12, and he'd have a feed of fish while he went to bed. And I, I thought he was the only one that did it, but I, I, I was talking to other men down the years and they used the same thing, you know, but, um, yeah. And what so, else would you eat in the house? Uh, home, I would think it was homemade bread, eggs, there wasn't enough meat, you know. And where would you get the eggs? We'd have our, we had our own hens and chickens. Did you have many hens and we chickens? We had around 30 hens, I think, as far as I know at the time. Between hens and chickens, I think it was 30, 35. My aunt now used to take care of them and feed them and all that stuff. And we collect the eggs every day. We had our own eggs. And um, they were fed twice a day. And you call the hens when they came out in the morning, of course, they came out of, they were perched up inside in the little hen house on, 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 on lats or piece of timber. And uh, if you had ducks, the ducks would sleep on the floor. The duck wouldn't go up. The hens would go up and, and they'd perch. That's how they slept. And there was a box in the hen house, I remember. There was a box that used to be oranges or something in the local shop. And there was two divisions in the box inside. So you could have two hen, hen in each box and you get eggs, the eggs, they lay in the eggs there. And then they'd be out in the fields all day. The hens would travel. No, there was no boundary for them. They were, they were really organic or whatever you're talking about them organic today these are top of the range free range and when they'd be getting fed in they'd be called my aunt would call them and she'd call them chook 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 you'd have hens coming from all sides and she'd feed them like you know and what would she feed them mixture of oats i think and and potatoes cooked potatoes there'd be leftover small potatoes 
And, and then she'll mix them up and fire them out on the ground for them and they'll all come eating them. And they'll be all... Duk, 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 duk. And did you grow the oats yourself? We grow the oats ourselves, yeah. And the potatoes? And, and the potatoes. Daddy used to cut the oats at the side. We never stack of oats. That was, it was small. It was a very small out, out, a small system we had. But that's what we had now. And you fed them the oats. And if you came short oats, then you would, um, you'd have to buy it. And I remember Mammy coming back from Chu when she married my father. She got this idea that she'd make money on, on with the hens. So she invested and she got she had about fifty hens at one stage, you know, first year she got married. And she was feeding them the oats, right? <clears throat> but one day I think she went out to get the oats and there was no oats. She said, Where's the oats to my father? He said, That's it, it's gone. So because she came from uh, where there was a bigger farm and they had the oats all year round. And Daddy never told her that he, that he didn't have that. But I think he didn't tell her because he just didn't, he didn't deliberately not tell her. He just didn't maybe assume she knew, like. So the bottom line is she had to buy the oats and for the, hen, for the hens and the chickens. And, but, um, and I do remember, I remember once in particular, the, they used to, the, they came back from Lena Hotel buying eggs of her. And, but she learned very quick that there was, she was broke with the, when she had to buy the oats to feed them, there was, not, there was no profit out of them. Okay. So the hens, I think they were curtailed a bit and the numbers were worked back down again. And um, that was, that was it. There was a neighbour that lived over road and he always maintained that a hen always died in death. And I, I think he was right. A hen always died? Died in death. They never oh, paid Oh, I see, in death, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's that's the story of the hens and the chickens and, and all that, you know. And then would you help your dad or who would help who would help plant the oats and plant uh, the I said myself and my brother, my other so brother, the two were the two oldest, Johnny and myself. I was the oldest and we'd help my father with the potatoes. I remember sadding them up with him and we'd go back he'd go back to get the weed at the shore first. He'd have to go back at night, it might be two o'clock in the morning. Because the weed came in with the tide. The seaweed. The seaweed and the a system was, uh, the procedure was, that whoever got there first, there'd be several people. Most people would be looking for the seaweed. That, and that's how they, that was the manure they was for their spuds. So daddy might go back and there could be some man ahead of him and he never got. And the way he knew it was got was because when it came in on the shore, it came in kind of in a roll, in a line. So the first person there, put little trenches in it, they broke it up. They broke the line, in other words, and they threw stones on top of it. So if you got there after that, you knew there was somebody ahead of you. So that was the unwritten law that you wouldn't touch it was somebody else's weed. So then you might have to go back the next night and so on and so forth. It had only come in then as well when the wind was a certain direction. And why wouldn't he cut it or was there none along the shore there? Uh, he didn't have to cut it because he could get it on the shore. Oh, so. And it was less work. Handier. Interesting now that you asked me that question because going back before that, there was more people using it and a lot of people had to go to, used to go to the islands for it and cut it. And but he didn't cut us. But by the time, this, I'm talking about my time also, that was beginning to fade. Some people are going on to artificial manure then. So there was less demand for it. So... And how would he transport it? 
transport, we'd transport it to dry in the shore first. So you go back the next morning with baskets or cleaves, and we what we call bank it, put it up on the bank on the fence on mm -hmm. the on the land at the top of the tide. So the next procedure was you bring a horse and cart down to take it from there because you couldn't bring the horse and cart down on the shore. They wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to go down there. So it was put from the bank into the horse cart, taken to the field then. And did you borrow the horse and cart or did you the have that? The neighbour was out on hire. And you, you got him and he came and you paid him a fee. And um, then after that, the tractor came. In the latter years then, I remember we had the tractor. And what did you think about the quality potatoes that you were producing? They were pretty good, but uh, sometimes it could be a bit, as we call them, a bit soapy. The weed needed to be put out right before the end, of the, I think before the December, to be in the ground. If it was put out later on the earth, they tend to be a bit not as dry or, 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 or flowery to eat them, you know, but in most, most times they were sound. And would you have them with a little bit of homemade butter, maybe? Homemade butter and sometimes rashers, sometimes some fish. And who used to make the butter? My aunt and my mother used to share the churn, more or less, when they were making the butter. And um, they like, we live, we only had two cattle, like, two cows, I should say. And the, when the cow calved, the milk was put into the, to a big basin. And the next morning, the cream would have come to the top on the on the on the on the on the basin of milk, and the procedure they had was just a bowl, uh, not a lot bigger now than that, but they just get the um, basin and blow, blow the cream into the container. That was as simple as it was. You know, that would take a while before you had enough to make a churn. Then they'd make the churn. Over my grandmother's place, then they were much more sophisticated. I used to be over there as a child. And they'd have a um, separator that they put, let's see how that, how that they'd, uh, they'd put it into separating the, to separate the milk from the cream. There were two spouts coming out of it and they'd put the hand around. And the cream would go into one base and the, and the skim it went into the other one. And when your mother and your auntie would be churning the butter, would they be doing it together at the same time? Well, you, the, the, only one person could work the churn. They wouldn't be taking turns. They take turns to give the other person a rest, more or less. And then they'd be handling around like that. And sometimes they could sing it. My, my aunt used to home a bit of a song, I think. And then they'd lift the lid off of the churn after so long. They'd be looking at the bottom of the lid. Is it broke yet? And I was pretty young, like I, I thought they were talking about the lid being broken, the churn, and were, it was a phrase he used that meaning broke meant that there'd be little bubblings of butter beginning to appear on the bottom of the lid. And they had to be careful because if they kept turning the handle at the same speed, the, 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 there'd be no butter on the, in the churn. So they'd slow down, when they seen the little dots of butter on the lid, they'd slow down the procedure of turning the handle. And then the butter began to gather inside the churn on the dash, big lumps of butter. And what happens if you overturn the butter under? I think it would, um, to never get there, it would never make butter. Ah, okay. As I know, you know. 
So, um, and do you remember what, what your auntie used to hum or think? Jeez, I don't know. No, no. I don't know she's at, yeah. So you left school and you started fishing with your dad. We suppose you wouldn't call it fishing. Would you call it lobster fishing or yeah. going after the... It would be lobster fishing. And lobster fishing. And what was big stuff like for me. Yeah. And did you enjoy yeah. the freedom of it? What was my idea altogether. What did you like about being out in the sea? I just liked the excitement of seeing the lobsters in the pots. Maybe if today was rough, the boat caught it up and down and you could, you could feel it in your belly, the excitement. You go up and down like that. That kind of stuff. Rowing then, I was just fascinated with rowing the Corahand. Manoeuvring around pots and ropes and all that stuff, you know. And were you interested in improving your technique and getting faster and getting... Well, more or less improving the technique than with the patterns because there was a whole... I guess there's a whole technique involved in it. You know, my father, could you could show me, but... He could only take you so much, show you so much, you'd have to get it the rest yourself then. But you, you was, as you went along, you learned it, like, you know, so. And what do you think about the way life was then? Oh, it was great, like, really. It's much different than it is now. Um, what do you think was great about it? There wasn't, it's, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the world has got a bit too um, materialistic, you know. I think there's a lot of that in it, and I think it's maybe not the best thing. Whereas back then, that that wasn't there. People weren't like People that. People weren't like that. From my memory of them, they did their days work. They were great workers. Every neighbour was there. They were all great workers. But they did a day's work, and then they they finished, like you know, and they do it again the next day. No. They had time then that time to. You'd always be talking to your neighbours across the fence, maybe in the next field. They talk about the weather or something or whatever, and there's none of that today there, you know. People are going in cars, they seem to have no time. Everything back then was done by hand. I think every single thing. And I kind of find it very hard to understand when I look back at that, that they did all that stuff. They went they went to the shop, even went to the shop by Shanks and me walking or the best they'd have is a bicycle. They went to church uh, every Sunday, not like today. And um, they did all the work on the land or if they're on the sea, the same thing. It was all done by hand. There was hardly any, any, any motor to and stuff. And um, today, like everything is under, it's, as I say, it's under a tap, a switch, a pedal or a button. I know how we got it all now. And there's less time to, for people to talk about anything, you know. So that's the that's the changes in it. And you were saying there, you know, they do, people do their day's work and then just, they yeah. go in the evening. Then what what would people do in the evenings? Very often they'd visit visit the houses, and some houses would they would be telling stories, and every man would have a story. A lot of men would have, and they, a neighbour come in and he'd tell a story. And then it might be another neighbour that would tell the story the next night. And that, that lad would try to have a better story than the fella before him. So all these stories, I guess, must have been developed out of, like, naturally by, by that. That's, that was what, that's, that's the way they spent their time, you know. They'd come in, I remember we, our house now wasn't a story house as such, but there was neighbours who would come in visiting. And they'd just come in, 
they just knock on the door, 8 o'clock. There's no such thing that now we have to make an appointment for somebody to come in here, you know. They just knock on the door and come in and sit down for the night there and there might be tea going or whatever. That was how it was. Some houses then I think maybe had a bit of music in them further back the road from us. Other houses they might they might play cards. I did a bit of it myself playing cards in neighbours' houses. You know. If we wanted to get a haircut, we'd go to the neighbour, back the road, and over the road. There was one neighbour I used to go to and he lived two doors away and he'd always say, You can never you can never spoil a haircut, he said, because it'll be always grown, he said. I thought that was a very, very good phrase. And would you have to do something in return for the haircut? Or not really, no, 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 we did not really know. That was just that was how just how it was. But um And do you remember any of the stories? Do any of the stories come to mind now? No, there's I have saw but there's detailed have one or two but they're they're long stories like, you know. And I've lasted bits of them forgotten as well. Yeah, when I'm at telling them all the time you'd lose that you'd lose the Give one a whirl there. Give one a whirl. Oh, jeez, and then I don't know. Um, I can't uh, remember. There was one. There was one. Daddy told us about about um. It was a taxi across the bay. We we live across the bay from from me. a place called Tullabon. It's just across the bay from us. And uh, he he told us this story that one evening there was a man down. Near the near enough to see there across from Killery Harbour, he was putting a sideline on his horse. You know what a sideline is here? Or a spancel. <clears throat> the spancel is a rope that you tie from the front leg of the horse to the back leg, oh, yeah. and you shorten the rope. Mm-hmm. And the reason being, sometimes you have what's called a stray horse or a stray donkey. So when you spancel them, he couldn't walk at, the, at his full pace, you see. So this man was putting the spencer on his horse. It was around sunset. And when he, he was knelt down doing it, as he'd have to do, but when he started to get up, there was two men standing beside him. And the men said they wanted him, they wanted him to bring them into Inishark Island. Inishark Island was across the bay, west of, west of Tullabon. So we, they said, we, we'll, We'll bring you back and leave you back here safe and sound when we're finished. We're going on a mission, but we want, we need you with us. So the man said, okay, he agreed with them. So they walked down to the sea and they walked out into the water and he walked after them. So they walked in across the sea, all the way into Nishtork Island. And Nishtork now would be off the coast and Mayo, it's in Mayo. They went in there anyhow and they went in off the shore and they went up to a house and the man that was at his Spancy's house was coming behind them and he went in with them and there was a big wedding, a big celebration around inside in the house there was a wedding, there was a couple out to get married and they were, they, were all, they were all around the table and they were eating but the two men went in with, with the other man with them and they went up a lot of them house had kind of a loft up at the back, a kind of a half room. They went up in the loft, they were up overhead at the, at the crowd. And they were looking down the table, people eating at the table, and the bride was there, and the groom was there, and they were all having drinks and food and everything. And <clears throat> sometime out in the night, the, 
um, I'm getting, I'm getting bogged down. I think the bride, the bride, the bride sneezed, and she sneezed a second time, and one of the men said to the other, "If she sneezes another third time, and nobody says anything, we have her." So she sneezed the third time, and the man that was sidelined his horse to do them said God bless us and with that they, heard, they fired him down after, after, after laughed and he was spread out all over the table he put delf and food and everything everywhere and as he rose up, up to get off the table the two men were heading for the door going out so he turned back to grab a, a bit of bread he was hungry so he took, he took a quarter of bread with him, went down that, they went down to the sea up in Shark Island and he had the quarter of bread and they went out into the water and they started to sink. And one of the men asked him, he said, you take anything out of the house with you? No, we only took a quarter of bread. Well, they said, get rid of it or, or we're going to get lost. So he threw away the bread and they walked all the way across into Taliban again and left the man back as they had promised where they had where they found him that evening. About a year afterwards, that man was down in Lewisburg at a fair, I think. And he was walking up the street. And who did he who did he see who was coming down meeting him? But the girl that was married out on the island the year before. And he stopped talking to her. And he said, you know, he said, I was at your wedding, he said. And she looked at him and she said, no, you aren't at my wedding. Well, he said, I was. And she said, no, I don't think so. Well, he said, you will remember out on the night when you were all sitting around the table having food and the table, food went all over the floor. Oh, she, she said, I do, she said. Well, he said, that was me that was fired down on the table, he said. And if it wasn't for me, he said, you wouldn't be here today. And I think that's the nuts and bolts of the story. So, but the two men was obviously from another time. They weren't. They weren't from this time, you see. And they couldn't. They couldn't uh, do what they wanted to do with, without having a person from this time with them. That's why they needed him. But when he said, "God bless us," he threw the whole thing up in the air. So that's my story now for you, Linda. And tomorrow night I might have another one for you. <laughs> and do you take any meaning from that story, or? Is it mostly just for entertainment? Um, Is there a lesson in the story somewhere? I'd say somewhere? there's an element of truth in all the stories, you know. I'd say there is. Yeah. I suppose one of the lessons in that would be don't take something that doesn't belong to you, I suppose. It's one I suppose, thing that so, happens. Yeah. He took the bread and then they were sinking. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say there's an element of truth in them all, you know. I don't know where my father got that story, I never asked him. He told us once or twice that happened to maintain most of it anyhow. And you but, were saying as well that the neighbours would chat a lot about the weather and I suppose that was very important for your, you and your the father. The weather was, yeah. Um, going out All the, the fishermen in particular, well the farmers too, but fishermen more so I'd say because your earlier life was dependent on how you could read the weather because there was no weather forecast. I think Radio Aiden was in its infancy. but. Um, even with the, even with that, even today with them, they can't get it wrong. 
because they're only they're only reading the weather like a chat really, you know, our screen. And how did you read the weather? There were different signs and they were they were handed down uh, traditionally. I got a lot of the stuff of my father when I started fishing with him. And I had an interest as well in it. I was just curious about it. <coughs> Along with getting to know it, you see. I was a bit, I guess, fascinated that he could tell if it was going to come raining or if it wasn't going to come raining or whatever. So he would tell me, say different things about going to sea and he said, we're not going to go out today now. And this would often be on a fine morning. And I'd ask him, for example, why won't we go today? He said, there's wind coming in today. And then I asked him, I said, how do you know that? And there was a beach down at the west of Mayo where the sand, you'd see the sand above in the air. Even on the dead calm day in our place, the sand would be up in the air. And when you always see, when you see that, there was always wind coming after it. It might be two, three, four hours, but it would come. Isn't that it? was one of the signs. There's a whole, <coughs> a whole litany of signs about the weather, like, you know. I have a lot of them, but I have a lot of them forgotten as well. Would you look at the sky and would you look at the You look at the sky, lots of things in the sky. I remember um, back one time back in the fields at Spuds in the evening and there was a woman and neighbour coming up the road. Then people got the name of being, oh, he's a good judge of the weather. Such a guy is a good judge of the weather. Or such a woman is a good judge of the weather. And there was a woman coming up, going up to the village and she'd always start talking to my father from the road into the field. And she'd ask him, what do you think, Martin, of the weather is? What's the weather going to do? This was the normal procedure. And I think he said there's rain on it. But she said, I agree with you. She said there's a very mackerel, there's called a mackerel sky. The sky was like the black of the mackerel. And when you're seeing that, you always have rain. But that's the discussion they'd have about the weather mostly. Then the other sign of the rain was if mackerel rose in the bay, you generally got, got rain after it as well. But there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And would you tend to be trying to avoid wind or the rain or, or both? Oh, we wouldn't. We'd want to enjoy, avoid, avoid the wind anyhow, because we, we were operating out in out of course, small boats, you see. So we wouldn't go out if the weather was anyways bad. <coughs> the sign of it coming bad, we, would, we wouldn't chance it either. Then the, the weather is governed by the tides. Like you could often have a change of weather at the turn of the flowing tide, or the turn of the ebb tide. I was out there actually the other, other day myself, when I was doing a bit of work on the land, it was raining. And the tide was high, and when I got in the field and it raining. The tide was high though, so I said to myself, Jesus, maybe if I hang off a while here, it could change, so I knew the tide was about to start ebbing. So the tide started to go down, the sun came out and dried up, so that the studio was fine. You know. So there's a big connection between the sea and the tides and all that stuff. I think you were telling me before something about a donkey as well, wasn't it? There's a oh, a donkey was a great, well, really great sign if you've seen the donkeys. On, the donkeys used to be on the public road that time. I don't see any of them now. But the Jimmy was all, I don't think I've ever seen one donkey on his own. There was always two. And if there was rain coming, they'd, um, the donkey would stand with his backside into the fence. And if there's two donkeys there, the two of them would do the same thing. Mm. And their head would be out across the road. So they'd be almost halfway across the road, because the road's in more narrow. So my father said to me, I said, see that, the, see the donkeys? Sometimes you call them dads. I said, yeah, what? I said, he said, there's rain coming, he said, and there's cold rain. I said, how do you know that? 
You see the way that the donkey is standing, he said. Sure enough, could be 48 hours to come and to be cold. Because a donkey, you see, a donkey can't bear much cold. And they can pick it up on the distance. We are, you know. Yeah. No. Would you like to go back to that time for a day? <laughs> or for longer? <laughs> Maybe for a day, I don't I wouldn't be fit to heck it in and out. I'm going kind of, kind of gone soft, you know. <laughs> but um, it's all I can talk about it. If you could bring back some of the things from that time, what would you bring back? I don't know, I'll probably bring back more fish in the bay. And, um, yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Just about how the fish has, the fishing has changed? Yeah, it's changed, changed a lot. Seem to be the fish, there's a, not a scarcity of fish, you know, on the shoreline anyhow. You know, there is the mackerel in there like they used to be at all. I remember I've seen our bay with mackerel one time. To be packed with mackerel as far as your eye could see. That's not there for years. They're all, they're all fished out with bigger boats. So I'd like to see a change in that, you know. Mm. Yeah. And having lived, you know, a lot of your life in Colmore and grown up in the way that you've described and everything like that, if you were going to give somebody life advice, what advice would you give them? Jeez, I don't know. Don't take things too serious. Keep it simple. I think that'd be about it. If they do that, they wouldn't be put to fair off. You know. I think that's very good advice. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for chatting to me You're today. You're welcome, Linda, now. And uh, we might chat again. Sounds about and um, you can the next time you we do that now, I think I might uh, you might bring a pipe with you, you? and <laughs> I, I I get another one. We have an old smoker. I could bring you a drop of the black stuff. <laughs> well, I won't say no to that either. I think you'll love your wife more, and she's going to say something for you, Maureen. No, no, I didn't. No. Okay. Well, thank you too, Maureen. <laughs> and uh, we'll say bye bye for now. Yes, long before. And why don't you say your your wonderful catchphrase that those two words you always say together? Oh, I'm, mighty. What's mighty? It was mighty entirely, Linda. Thank you very much. And who used to say mighty entirely? That now came over from my mother's country, around the Chum area. I used to hear them using that phrase. That's years ago. I don't know if they're still at it or not. But that if you said how was. How was the day there? For example, the, the response generally would be, oh, it's mighty entirely. <laughs> entirely. It's a good motto yeah. <clears throat> to have in life. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gurmina yeah. Mahad. Uh, Thanks very much, Jimmy. Thank you, Sir Lena. Now. I enjoy it, sure. And uh, yeah, I think that's all I have to say. Yeah. I kind of. Okie dokie. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Take care. Talk you, to you, you soon. Slant.